Well, good evening. It's time. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, as we talked about this morning, the way that you've demonstrated um, your love in the person of Christ. We thank you for that. We pray you'd be with our time this evening as we study uh, different denominations this week and next week. I pray that it would be a beneficial time, helpful time. Um, I pray that you would also be with the different activities taking place throughout the week. Um, I pray that everything that is done in our lives and in our church would be honoring and glorifying to you. Again, we uh, know there's many battling illness right now. I got heard from some today who are out of town traveling. I pray you keep them safe. Um, and again, I just pray that everything we say, everything we do, the attitudes that we have would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Tonight, next week, we're going to do a little introduction to denominations, highlighting the word introduction. Meaning, if we were going to actually study these, we could actually take each one of these denominations and take probably six to eight lessons going through them. We're not doing that. In fact, we're going to cover four this week and four next week, which means we're not going extremely in-depth. There's going to be a lot that we do not cover. My goal in this, one, and I want to be clear about this, one, my goal is not to attack other denominations. That is not my heart. I don't think that's the attitude that we need to have. So I'm not presenting this as we're going to attack every other denomination. I do want us to learn there are some significant differences, things that I think we need to be aware of, but we're we're not here to attack other denominations. I don't think that's the right attitude. So I'm not presenting it from that vantage point. Other thing I think it's important to say is we are not covering every belief that they have. We are not covering every practice that they have. And so again, I'm giving you about four to eight points on each one, just to kind of give you an overview of what distinguishes them from other denominations. And so understand that. There's going to be a lot that we do not cover. I'll recommend a book here in a moment that if you want to dive in more, there are plenty of resources out there that allows you to do so. Other thing I want to say is that in covering these, we are painting with a broad brush. Meaning under each heading of, for instance, one of the ones we're covering tonight is Presbyterian. Under the heading of Presbyterian, there are many, many different groups. We are not dealing with every unique belief of every group under the umbrella of Presbyterians or under the umbrella of Lutherans or under the umbrella of Methodists. We are painting with a very broad brush, which means, listen carefully, it is possible that your neighbor who adheres to one of these goes to a one of these churches that may be a little different than what we are presenting. We are presenting the basic overall beliefs, but there's going to be specifics that differ. Does that make sense? So if you go, if your neighbor comes up and you're talking and you say, and they tell you what they believe, and you say, "Uh uh-uh, you don't believe that. My pastor said this. Um, Understand, there can be differences underneath that umbrella. So I, I I want to lay that out there. So number one, we're not attacking other denominations right? All right. Number two, we're not covering everything. And number three, we're painting with a broad brush. So the, the eight denominations we're going to cover this week and next is an overview of Pentecostal denominations, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists. Next week, we are going to cover, we're going to end talking about Baptist. We're also going to talk about Epis- the Episcopal movement or the Episcopal branch, so to speak. We're going to talk about Church of God, and we're going to talk about Church of Christ. All right, those are the, those are the ones that we're, that we're going over. And again, um, there's some of you here who know more about some of these than, than I do, and I fully acknowledge that. And so um, feel free, if I say something that's not exactly what you think is accurate, let's discuss it. Um, I'm completely open to that. Y'all ready? See, I find this fun. You all find this int fun? Not about fun, interesting. Now, well, I thought about asking who's from what background, but then I didn't. You think that'd be fun? That'd be fun. I don't want anybody throwing hymnals across at other. We're going to stay away from that. All right. Here's a book I want to recommend before we dive in. Um, This is The Complete Guide to Christian Denominations by Ron Rhodes. The Complete Guide to Christian Denominations. And it covers, and I'll recommend another one next week. Um, But it goes through everything from Baptist Brethren, Christian, Congregational, Episcopal, 
holiness, Lutheran, Mennonite. It goes through a lot more than what we're going through. But if you hear one of these and you're interested in learning more, this would be a book that I would recommend, The Complete Guide to Christian Denominations. If you want to flip through it afterwards, you're more than welcome to. All right, let's dive in. All right, the first group we're dealing with is Pentecostal denominations. Um, and next week, we're going to dive into a little bit more of a couple that would branch off from these. Um, but Pentecostal denominations, where do they get their name, do you think? Where does the name Pentecostal come from? I heard it, Pentecost, all right? And, and we're going to talk about why that is in a moment. There, most of these names, the names come from something very specific about where they, whose teachings they follow or a specific practice that differentiates them. Pentecostalism or the Pentecostal denominations got their name because of their close association with some of, some of the events associated with Pentecost. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a moment. Let me give you a few interesting facts about this as we go through. Here's number one. There are 170 different denominations that identify themselves as Pentecostal. So over the next 170 weeks, you could take a different one and study each one of them. Understand, this is why we're painting with a broad brush. 170 different denominations who identify themselves as Pentecostal. That is a lot. Um, one of the interesting things in these books is each one of these main headings that you go under, even with Baptists, you know there's diff 90 different Baptist groups, 90 different groups under the heading of Baptist. And the last one is always my favorite. It's Unified Baptist. You've got 90 different ones listed, and it closes out in alphabetical order, Unified Baptist. Well, it, it, every one of these, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, there's all kinds of different branches underneath that umbrella. So that's why there can be so many different individual, unique beliefs. Number two, Pentecostal ideas did not begin to penetrate into mainline denominations until the 1970s. Pentecostal ideas did not begin to penetrate into the mainline denominations until really until the 1970s. What I mean by that is there are groups under most of the mainline denominations who have an arm that would consider themselves to be Pentecostal. There are Baptist churches that have Baptist in their title that have a Pentecostal leaning towards them. Um, you can find different groups under mainline denominations who may not even be accepted by the mainline denomination, but they've branched off and they still hold to their Baptist or their Methodist title, but yet they have a Pentecostal leaning. Um, that really didn't, that was uncommon prior to 1970, all right? Number three, there are three main divisions within Pentecostalism, all right? There are three main divisions, and in, in, in this, I'm going to give you kind of what the divisions are, what the background is, and what kind of differentiates these between each other. Here's the first one, A, the Church of God and Church of Christ. These are from the Holiness Church. How many of you have heard of the Holiness Church? All right, these are from the Holiness Church background, all right? The, holy, those, the Holiness Movement kind of led to the beginning of the Church of God and Church of Christ. Now, there's in these Church of God and Church of Christ churches, there are three steps that they say indicate growth, meaning spiritual growth, and these are in order. Three steps or three um, steps is probably the best way of putting it. Three steps that indicate growth, and again, these are in order. The first one is justification. Justification, or you could say the forgiveness of sins. All right, justification or the forgiveness of sins. The second one is sanctification, which they would say is the pursuit of holiness or the pursuit of purity. It's the pursuit of holiness. So you, you, you begin by this, by having salvation, you have the forgiveness of sins, you're right standing before God. Then they would say the next step after your salvation is the pursuit of holiness because and it makes sense, right? You're not going to want to pursue holiness until you first have a relationship with Christ and understand his expectation of holiness. So you have the forgiveness of sins, salvation, the pursuit of holiness. But then the third one is really what distinguishes Pentecostalism from other denominations, and it is what they call baptism of the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit, which the key thing that is usually, and I say usually because there are exceptions, the key thing that is usually highlighted is speaking in tongues. 
That is the key thing that dif- differentiates Pentecostalism from most other mainline denominations. So I want you to get the I want you to see the order. Forgiveness of sins or salvation, justification, sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of purity, and then baptism of the spirit, which would be the again the speaking in tongues. Let me pause here and share what we or what what I believe and what the typical Baptist belief is, is that at the moment of salvation, you are filled with the Spirit then. There is not a, what we would say, there is not a, what some would say is a second blessing or a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That at the moment of salvation, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens simultaneously. It all happens at the same time. Um, But they would say, no, you have your salvation, and then later, after you go through this progression, after you're pursuing holiness, later, once you re- reach this certain spiritual level, then God, in his sovereignty, decides to pour out his spirit, to baptize you in his spirit. And that is evidence through speaking in tongues. So that's the Church of God, Church of Christ background. The second group, or the second division, is the Assemblies of God. Have you all heard of the Assemblies of God? The Assemblies of God are actually from a Baptist background. When the Assembly of God denomination began, it was started by a group who were formerly Baptists. All right, They started the Assembly of God. Now, here's what is specific to their belief. Here's what they say. That bab- excuse me, this should be baptism of the Spirit is available to any believer, to any believer regardless of sanctification. So look back up to the one above. You have justification, sanctification, baptism of the Spirit. The assemblies of God would say, yes, you have to have a relationship with God. You have to be saved. You have to be sanctified. Excuse me, you have to be justified. But even if you're not pursuing spiritual growth, you can still experience baptism of the Spirit. You can still speak in tongues, even, even if you're not pursuing holiness. So, But the church of God says, no. You have to be pursuing holiness before God is going to allow you to be baptized by the Spirit and thus speak in tongues. The assemblies of God says it doesn't matter if you're pursuing spiritual growth. This is available to everyone, all right? The third group is a little more unknown to us here in the West. Maybe you're familiar with it, but it is the United Pentecostal Church, and they are from the Oneness Pentecostal background. Have you heard of the Oneness Pentecostal background? Have you heard of the United Pentecostal Church? Okay, some of you have. If you go to the Philippines, this is huge in the Philippines. There are churches of 10, 15, 20,000 who fall into this, under this umbrella of the United Pentecostal Church. Here's what they say. Speaking in tongues is a necessary proof of salvation. So you see the progression here, right? This last group, the United Pentecostal Church, says if you do not speak in tongues, it is because you are not truly saved. If you are truly saved, then you will be able or you will speak in tongues. So again, I want you to understand the, the, the difference in these three, three arms. You have this first group that says you have justification, which is the forgiveness of sins. You have sanctification, which is the pursuit of holiness. Then you have baptism of the Spirit, which is evidence in speaking in tongues. The next group looks at that one and says, no, that's too rigid. Yes, you have to have justification, forgiveness of sins, but anyone can have baptism of the Spirit. Anyone can have the, have the speaking in tongues. And then the third group looks at it all and says, well, in, in a way, you're all too loose about this. If you are saved, you will speak in tongues. And if you have never spoken in tongues, then perhaps you're not really saved. It is a necessary proof of salvation. Paul says not. That's where we would go to the teaching of Paul. (laughs) I I love you, Glenda. Um, That's where you'd go to the teaching of Paul. We would go to the teaching of Paul. We'd walk through his teaching on that. Um, Here's the thing. With, With Pentecostalism... What would you say, and again, this is a broad brush, 170 different denominations, we're not going to be able to deal with everything they all teach, but what is the one thing that you would say separates Pentecostalism or the Pentecostal denominations from the majority of the other denominations? Okay, speaking in tongues is, and this is why I wanted to mention this, the speaking in tongues is the outward manifestation of what they say uh, of, of what the doctrinal difference is, all right? So 
here's the doctrine. The speaking in tongues is the practice, all right? Every practice is built on a belief, right? So every practice, everything that is manifested outwardly is derived from something that is a belief internally. So the belief of the Pentecostal denominations is that at the moment of salvation, you can be saved and not be baptized with the Spirit, that you can be saved and not be baptized with the Spirit, to not be filled with the Spirit, that that comes at a later time. And the way that you know you are baptized with the Spirit is through the outward manifestation of speaking in tongues. So many times we emphasize the speaking in tongues, and, and I'm a, I, I, I'm figure out how to say this. Many times we emphasize the speaking in tongues, but we ignore the doctrine that leads to the speaking in tongues. Um, I, for one, and there, there are people that have differing opinions on this, I, I believe that the speaking of tongues ended when the Bible was complete. I do not believe it's no longer necessary, no longer needed. That's my personal belief. There are good people who have some differing opinions on that. That's not the topic this evening. We could spend the rest of the time talking about just that, but that is not the topic. But I do want you to know, when you're looking at Pentecostal denominations, The main thing that differentiates them from other denominations, what is visible is the speaking in tongues or some of the other sign gifts. Um, They'll have apostles, they'll have speaking in tongues, they'll have, even some will have those who do healings, but you could group it all under the sign gifts. Speaking in tongues is the most popular, speaking in tongues is the one that is talked about, it is the most visible, it is the most common. But I want you to understand that the outward symbol or the outward practice of speaking in tongues is derived from this belief that, you know what, if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, if you've really been baptized with the Spirit, you'll be able to do this. Now again, not every group believes exactly that, but that's an overview of the Pentecostal denominations. Now you're an expert, right? Not exactly. Let's move on to the other end of the spectrum, Presbyterians. Because Pentecostal service, if you walk into a Pentecostal service and it is full-blown Pentecostal, what is it going to be like? Exciting, crazy adventure. Um, It can be scary. Distracting. So all of these words, it's not calm. All right, let's put it like that. It's not calm. Many times, you go all the way over here to the other end, you have a Presbyterian church, and sometimes you walk into a Presbyterian church, and you're wondering if everybody in there is alive, (laughs) right? Because sometimes in the Presbyterian church, it's the polar opposite of that. Let me give you a little background about, well, let me ask you, where does the name Presbyterians come from? Okay. Presbyteries, which are groups of elders. So that clues you in a little bit there to their form of church government. Um, And and that's right. That's where it comes from is the idea of of presbyteries, uh, presbyters, those who are in that. Let let me give you a few interesting things about this. Um, Number one, they adhere to the teachings of John Calvin and John Knox. Ever heard of John Calvin? Ever heard of John Knox? All right, some of you, John Knox is not quite as familiar as John Calvin. Now, here's one thing I want us to understand. A lot of these denominations have these people way back in the 1500s, 1600s, such as John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, had a lot of Johns, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Martin Luther, Zwingli. You could go through all of these things, and they differed greatly on the specifics of what they believed. I think what we have to do is not that we look at them and we agree with everything about them, but we can understand that even though they differed, God used them. Uh, I wouldn't agree with everything with John Calvin, but God used John Calvin. I don't agree with everything with Martin Luther, but God used Martin Luther. Same thing with John Wesley, Charles Wesley. We could go through all of these people and we would say, you know what, I don't agree with everything that Peter said. Didn't he deny Christ three times? Would you all agree with denying Christ is a good thing to do? Now, obviously, his teaching, we follow that as inspired in Scripture, but we understand that we can learn from all of them. But let me give you a few other things about this. Number two, they were first organized in, anybody know where? Rome. 
Scotland. They were first organized in Scotland. Number three, they followed the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is their primary doctrinal statement, their primary creedal statement is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Any of, any of you ever read the Westminster Confession of Faith? Am I the only one? I've got a copy of it. I'll, I'll, uh, it's, it's interesting because you see so many things that are familiar, so much terminology that we use can be traced back to this confession of faith. Um, number three, four, there are two main groups, and this is crucial. Please get, if you don't get anything else about this denomination, get this. There are two main groups. There's a conservative group, and there is a liberal group, and it is confusing and hard to remember which is which. All right, the conservative group is known as the PCA, with over 335,000 members. The PCA, all right? 335,000 members. The liberal group is the PCUSA. You see how you could get this confused. The PCUSA has over 2 million members. So the conservative group, the PCA. The liberal group, the PCUSA. What do you think is the difference between the conservative and the liberal group? That's the difference in the name. What's the difference in their beliefs? Their view of Scripture is, is a huge area. The PCA does not believe in an inerrant, and sometimes even goes as far as not to believe in an inspired Bible. Excuse me, the PCUSA. See, I'm already getting them confused. That's what makes it hard. The PCUSA, the liberal group, does not believe in an inerrant Bible. They do not sometimes even believe in an inspired Bible. It is a good book that you can follow. What else? Well, that's the reason 335,000 left the PCUSA and started the PCA. I think I would have tried to come up with a different name to kind of make it a little easier, but there's also issues of morality. A lot of these issues of morality, such as um, um, same-sex marriage, uh, who can be ordained for ministry, um, a lot of these type of issues differentiate the two. So there are doctrinal differences, but then there are also practical or moral differences. Um, some of the more liberal groups within the underneath the Presbyterian umbrella um, are wishy-washy on even as, as far as the deity of Christ. Is the, was the resurrection of Christ a literal resurrection? So whenever you're talking with someone and they say they're Presbyterian, again, we've seen this over and over with the cults and world religions, you really have to figure out who you're talking to. Is it a PCA, PCUSA? And what's even harder is there are some who have yet to leave the PCUSA but agree with the PCA. That makes sense? So they haven't gone through all of the work to actually withdraw from the PCUSA. They don't agree with it. Their church as an individual church would not be considered a doctrinally liberal or a morally liberal church, but they haven't done everything necessary to withdraw and move over here. So even if someone says, my church, my Presbyterian church is a PCUSA, that doesn't even necessarily clue you in to what that one church believes or even what that one person believes. It can be very confusing, very challenging, is why we have to be very careful about lumping everyone into one big pot and saying, oh, all Presbyterians believe the same thing. Well, no, they don't. And some of the differences within the Presbyterian church are very, very significant and very, very crucial. Let me give you number five, and this is what, this is what I believe. Baptists are closer in beliefs to the conservative arm of the PCA than most any other mainline denomination. If you were not going to be a Baptist, but you wanted to believe what you believe, and you wanted to go to a church that held to the, the Baptistic beliefs, the Presbyterian, the conservative Presbyterian, are going to be closer than pretty much any other mainline denomination. Um, they believe, well, let's go through some of their beliefs, and you'll see some of these things. They have several key doctrines that, that they emphasize. Several key doctrines, and again, understand we're not covering every doctrine they teach. I'm giving you a few of their significant ones. One is the depravity of mankind, or you could say the total sinfulness, the utter sinfulness of mankind. 
which I would say that would be one of the doctrines we agree with. We believe that we are sinners. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. We are depraved. We are unable to save ourselves. Some people hear the word depraved or total depravity, and they automatically link that with John Calvin, link that with Calvinism. But that's one of the ones that I would say we probably are more in agreement with than a lot of the others. B, they stress the holiness of God. They, they stress the holiness of God. In fact, if you trace, trace this belief system back, it leads you to the, to the Puritans. How many of you have heard of the Puritans? All right, it, tra- it leads you back to the Puritans. One of the key things about the Puritans, but they, they were huge on the holiness of God. They didn't want anything happening in a church service that they didn't see happening in the church services in the, in the Bible. If you didn't see it in the Bible, they didn't want to do it because they were afraid that it would lead people away from the holiness of God and the structure and the, and the, the, the feel that God wanted the worship service to have. See, they stress the sovereignty of God. All right, they stress the sovereignty of God. And it wasn't just the sovereignty of God. I think all of us here would say, yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God. They went as far as to go and to say that the sovereignty of God is crucial in salvation, which we would even agree with that statement. But they go, one of the key things that identify Presbyterians is their Reformed theology or their Calvinistic beliefs. Have you heard of the term Calvinism? Heard of the term Reformed theology? Same ideas. But Presbyterians, again, following the teaching of John Calvin, Calvinism, are very heavy on the sovereignty of God in relation to salvation, even going as far as to say that the sovereignty of God overwrites man's free will. And so whoever is going to be saved is going to be saved because it's God's sovereign choice. That's the idea in, yes, <laughs> he raises one arm and Rebecca pulled it down and he raised the other one. <laughs> He's determined. Yeah. I don't know all the specifics, and I don't know the exact date. I do know that even now, even today, that split is still taking place. So it's more recent. It's not long ago. It's more recent. My gut is saying the mid-90s is when that started. Do you know, I mean, anybody anybody know specifically? I I think it was in the mid-90s because it's still happening today. There are still churches that are leaving the PCUSA and joining the PCA. That, That is actively taking place. People like Kevin DeYoung. Um, his church was in one, and he, and he was struggling, how do I do this, and trying to, trying to move out of that. So it's still in process. So it wasn't like there was a split, and the split's over. The split's still there, and the split is happening, and the conservative arm is growing because more and more are leaving. So, all right. Yes, ma'am. Have you ever heard of ARC? Mm-mm. Okay, and that's one of the ones, even under the Presbyterian umbrella, there are dozens and dozens of specific denominations. In fact, I don't know if this book has it listed or not. Um, No, this one doesn't. Um, The book I'll bring next week, under the umbrella Presbyterian, it actually goes through and gives two or three pages to about 20 different denominations or groups under the Presbyterian umbrella. So there are a lot, but uh, again, the, the key thing... So with Pentecostal, the key thing was this baptism of the Spirit and speaking in tongues, right? With Presbyterians, the main idea or the main distinguishing feature is going to be their stressing of the sovereignty of God in relation to salvation. They do have a different form of church government. It's a body of church elders. that It's complicated. That's a topic for another day. But let me give you this fourth belief. They do believe that salvation is by grace through faith. So do you all believe that salvation is by grace through faith? Yeah, we, believe, we agree with that. And that's why, even though we may have some differing on the specifics, we, we, can, we can worship with them and we can cooperate with them. They are not the enemy. But the main thing that separates the Presbyterians or differentiates them from all the other mainline denominations is their belief in the sovereignty of God in relationship to salvation. Now, again, here's what makes this confusing. There are Baptist churches that agree with Presbyterian theology in relation to, to, to the salvation. And so just because, just if someone says, you know, I agree with John Calvin, I, I agree with Calvinism, that doesn't automatically mean they're Presbyterian. They could be one of several different things. 
Um, and so we have to be careful, again, about automatically lumping people into a group. All right, C, Lutherans. Oh, yes, did I miss one? Okay, so it started, it started earlier than that. It started in 1973. Very good. Google is amazing. <laughs> All right, Lutherans. Number one, this group emerged from the teaching of? Good job. All right. Y'all are experts now. Martin Luther is considered to be the father of Protestantism. Um, in fact, he's one of my favorite historical figures. I've done more reading about Martin Luther than probably any other, histor- or any other Christian, historical Christian figure. I, I, I admire his boldness. I admire his courage. I don't agree with him on everything, but I admire his willingness to stand up and say, listen, our authority is Scripture. Scripture alone is what guides us. Um, he did this in the face of death. There were people hunting him down, looking to take his life. He was having threats from all kinds of people. And in the midst of that, he stood firm. He battled depression. Um, he was in a castle where he was translating the Bible and battling depression. It's in that moment that he wrote, based on Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. He wrote that in, in, the, in this heavy time in his life. I, I can tell you a lot about Martin Luther. Again, that's not the topic this evening, but I admire him. He is the one, or his beliefs led in the Protestant Reformation, led in what some people view as a split from the Catholic Church, and kind of created this arm of that has become known as Lutheran, all right? A few other interesting things about this. Number two, there are 82.6 million Lutherans around the world. 82.6 million. That's a lot, right? Number three, the first Lutherans to migrate to the U.S. were from Germany and Sweden. Luther was what? He was German, so it just makes sense that he leads in this Reformation, kind of this split from the Catholic Church. The first Lutherans to migrate to the U.S. were from Germany then and then also from Sweden. Number four, the first Lutheran service in the U.S. was a Christmas service in 1619 on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day in 1619. All right. Number five, there are several key beliefs and practices. And I would say the vast majority of these, we would stand right beside the Lutherans and say a hearty amen. All right. We are very close in a lot of the core doctrinal teachings of the Lutheran church. We would stand right along with them. So let me give you these, and I'll give you a little backdrop of why Luther taught these so, so heavily and why they are so important to the Lutheran church. A is the priesthood of all believers. Luther looked at the Catholic church, and he had some problems with what they were doing. And it wasn't just their doctrine he was very big, and we'll talk about this in a minute, justification by faith. He was very big on Scripture alone as being our sole authority. But he also had some practical problems, and it kind of boiled down to this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Here's what he thought. Number one, that all believers are meant to serve. All believers are meant to serve. And then two, all believers are meant to worship. See, when Luther looked at the Catholic Church, in his estimation, when you when the average person went into what we'll call a, a Catholic worship service or a Catholic mass, he said too much of it is centered around the practice and the worship of the priests. He said all believers are meant to worship. Not only are all believers meant to worship, all believers are meant to participate in worship, participate in the singing and the giving and the serving. All believers are meant to serve. All believers are meant to worship. We are, in his mind, and we would agree with this, there is this idea of the priesthood of the believer to where we do not have to go to a priest. We can, as we talked about this morning, Jesus is our high priest. We can enter boldly into the, the, to the, to the throne of God, and we can approach God, and we can pray to God. We don't have to go through a priest. This idea of the priesthood of all believers was crucial to him. Number two, or excuse me, B, he believes strongly, Lutherans believe strongly in Scripture alone. The mantra of the Reformation, one of the, the key tenets of the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. 
We talked about this when we studied Catholicism, but Luther looked, and one of the challenges, again, he saw was that it wasn't Scripture alone for the Catholic Church. They also had the tradition of the church, and they also had the infallibility of the Pope. And he looked at this and said, no, it is Scripture alone. And when he began studying Scripture, and he was a theologian, when he began studying Scripture, he began seeing that a lot of the things that the Catholic Church were doing were nowhere to be found. Penance was not found. Purgatory was not found. And that's when he began to say, no, it is Scripture alone. Scripture is our authority. We, we don't have to listen to anyone else. We don't have to listen to the Pope. How do you think that made the Pope feel? That's why there were people out for his life. There were cardinals out for his life. He was saying that you don't have to listen to them. The Pope is not our authority. He even went as far as to say the church is not our authority. Scripture is our authority. How do you think that made the leaders of the church, the Pope and the cardinals? They wanted him dead. They gave him an opportunity to confess, to recant this at the the, the, the Diet of Worms is what it was called. And he is standing there, and he is put on trial. And they, were, they basically told him, either recant or what, do you think they said? Hmm? Yeah, they were, going to, they were going to, at minimum, throw him in prison. They were going to take his life. And he said, let me have some time to think about it. And he went up to his room, and he came back in the next day. And he... And, and his, if, I would encourage you to look this up, and you can probably find it on Google. Look this up. You can read his speech, and it is, again, you see the courage, and you see the boldness. And he basically, I'm going to summarize. He says, if I am not persuaded by Scripture alone, he says, in this instance, I am, I, I am persuaded that Scripture does not teach this, and Scripture is my authority, therefore I will not recant. In the face of this, he says, I will not recant. Scripture is my authority. The church is not my authority, tradition is not my authority, the Pope is not my authority. And this boldness and this courage that he had was demonstrated in that moment. But he believed strongly in Scripture alone, as do Lutherans today. Lutherans today believe strongly in Scripture alone. The third thing was also a key tenet of the Protestant Reformation, and that is justification by faith apart from works. Justification by faith apart from works. Sola fide, faith alone. You have these five beliefs or five things that kind of led in the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, faith alone, you might know the rest of them, Christ alone, the glory of God alone, you might remember the other one? You know it? No? I thought you were getting ready to say it. Anybody else? Grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone. Did I? Yes. <laughs> Let me back up a second. Thank you. All right, Scripture alone. Scripture is inspired by God. See, I do this at least once every other week. Scripture is inspired by God. Do we agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Number two, Scripture is the rule and standard of faith and practice. Here's what he's saying. It's Scripture that guides us. We look to Scripture. For our lives on how we are to live, we look to Scripture. For the church, how the church is to operate, we look to Scripture. Scripture is our authority. All right, then justification by faith. What does justification mean again? To, to be declared righteous is our standing before God. And what Luther was seeing in the Catholic Church is they do not believe that it's justification alone in Christ, by, in Christ, by faith. They, they add in works. And he had a big problem with that. He had a big problem with that. And so he said, no, it is justification by faith apart from works. Here's, a, here's a, a belief that distinguishes, and we've talked about this on Wednesday evenings before, but they believe, number four, D, number D, letter D, that bab, they, they believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are not merely signs and symbols or memorials, but channels through which God bestows forgiving and empowering grace upon humankind. So if you were to go into a Lutheran service, I, I could probably ask John, Endeavor. When you go into a Lutheran service, one of the things that you're going to see is you're going to see Protestant biblical beliefs, things that we would readily and boldly agree with. But you're also going to see a lot of tradition. You're going to see a lot of liturgy, liturgical practices in the church. 
Is that a fair, fair assessment? So in this split, and again, if I'm incorrect on this, please correct me. In the split from the Catholic Church, they, they split from, their, from the, a lot of the beliefs of the Catholic Church, and a lot of the beliefs that became known as these core beliefs and core doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, you will find readily in the Lutheran Church, but there's still this strong element of tradition, these liturgical practices, and again, there's nothing wrong with those, but that's going to be the feel in a Lutheran, in a Lutheran worship service. Um, and so that's going to be a key thing that you see in the Lutheran church. But I want you to understand that they do have, in the Lutheran church, the core doctrinal beliefs are things that we would agree with. And again, underneath the Lutheran, there's a lot of different denominations underneath that. And so there's going to be differences from church to church, but those are the key core beliefs. All right, let's talk about Methodist. Yes. Right, symbols. And he even differed a little bit from the Catholic Church in that. Because, um, I mean, it, it was a. So you have, I'll give you some big words here transubstantiation and consubstantiation. It's views on the Lord's Supper. Luther differed from the Catholic Church. Um, I personally, this is my personal belief, I, I, we would say in the Baptist churches and Baptist circles that the bread and the juice are symbols. I, I believe that's what, that, that's what I believe the correct view is. Um, Luther differed from the Catholic Church, but he didn't go as far as where, where we go in saying that the bread and juice are symbols. Is that a fair, fair assessment of that? Um, and again, that, that's one of the differences that in that God bestows his grace um, in, in, in those, what they would call sacraments, all right, which we, what, what do we call them? Ordinances, all right, so even though the terms a lot of times are interchangeable, they do communicate a little bit of a difference, and so, um, but again, the main thing I want you to get, walk away from knowing about the Lutherans is, listen, we, we are here today in large part, our denomination is here today in large, large part because of the Reformers, which was really began in large part by, by Martin Luther. Um, everything began, this split from the Catholic Church, this Protestant Reformation was spearheaded by Martin Luther. Um, others came along after him and I think began to further develop some of his ideas um, but again, we owe a lot to him and what God did through him. All right, let's talk about Methodists. Methodist. Number one, founded by John Wesley. Who is John Wesley's brother? Charles Wesley. What is Charles Wesley known for? He wrote over a thousand hymns. He wrote songs such as, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing written by Charles Wesley. Him and John Wesley and Charles Wesley ministered side by side, but Charles Wesley wrote, and, and by the way, Charles Wesley was also a, a, a preacher. He would preach to thousands of people. Um, a lot of Christmas songs were written by Charles Wesley, um, and there's one I was thinking of, and I can't remember what it was, but um, if you look in your songbook, through especially the Christmas songs, in our songbook, a lot of the Christmas songs, or a number of the Christmas songs were written by Charles Wesley. Both of them were were instrumental in the Methodist church, all right? Number two, they have 12 million members and 42,000 congregations. 12 million members and 42,000 congregations. Number three, this is, I find this interesting. Anybody know why they were, well, it's there on number three. Let me just give it to you. They were originally called Methodists because of their strong commitment to certain methods of pursuing holiness, such as prayer, fasting, Bible reading, and charitable work. So your blank there on number three is methods. People would look at them, and they would say, you, have, you are so committed to prayer and fasting and Bible reading and charitable work. You have these methods that you think lead to holiness, that lead to, which we would actually agree with a lot of those things, prayer, fasting, scripture reading, God uses those in our lives. But people would look at them and say, you have all these methods, so the name Methodist be kind of 
launched and how this group became known. Number four, found it interesting that the issue of slavery split the Methodist church in 1844, but they merged back together in 1939. Many of these denominations had issues um, that would, would cause splits, would cause some divisions, and some of them, the divisions stayed and some of them came back together. Um, this was one that came back together. It doesn't mean there's not different arms underneath that, but there was a very big split, and that big split came back together in 1939. Number five, they have several key doctrinal beliefs that they emphasize. The first one is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. The second one is, and we would, again, we would agree with both of these, B, the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is their, again, I want to stress their historical belief. Their historical belief. Because of the next point. Number six. I was hoping somebody would ask. No. Recently, there has been a liberal shift in the overall Methodist denomination. By overall Methodist denomination, meaning the powers that be in the overall Methodist church are trying to lead the denomination in a certain direction. Now, that, before I tell you what these are, it does not mean that every church agrees. It does not mean that every person who is a Methodist agrees. But the overall United Methodist denomination is attempting to take the Methodist denomination in a very particular direction, and I would suggest that it is away from the scriptural positions. For instance, let me give you three things. Most Methodists, and again, this is the most United Methodist, it's pretty interesting. If you go out, you'll see signs that say United Methodist, but you'll also see signs that say Independent Methodist. Have you ever seen an Independent Methodist church? Some of you have. When you see that, it is because they did not agree with everything happening in the United Methodist um, under that umbrella, and so they became independent. They still held to a lot of their Methodist beliefs, the, the stressing the holiness of God and the holiness of the Christian life, but yet they, so they wanted that Methodist title, but yet they wanted to break from the Methodist denominations. But here, A, most Methodists today reject the idea of an, of an inerrant Bible. The, if you were to run into a Methodist on the, on the street, majority of them, if they know what the idea of inerrancy is, it's something that they frown upon. It's something that they kind of, um, in recent years, have been getting to push to the side. What, what does inerrancy mean? Say what? Error-free, error without error. Who knows what infallible means? All right, so very similar, right? Inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means without error. Infallible means incapable of having or incapable of making an error. So two different ideas, very closely associated. Many within the Methodist denomination reject the idea of inerrant Bible. Um, and that is something that you see more and more. It is growing within the United Methodist denomination. Number B, letter B, they, many, or the overall denomination, the United Methodists, support abortion. In fact, in one of the biggest pro-abortion groups in our country, the United Methodist denomination was a founding member. Now again, I want to be very clear, that does not mean that every Methodist agrees with that or every church agrees with that. Many of them do not. But again, if you're looking at the overall United Methodist denomination, that is something that they are pushing. That's something that they want to be um, included. And then C, they have become very ecumenical. And we need to define this word. They have become very ecumenical. E-C-E-C-U-M-E-N-I-C-A-L. E-C-U-M-E-N-I-C-A-L. What does it mean to be ecumenical? Say what? All-inclusive. What does that mean in religious, in religious circles? All religions together. So in their mind, it is okay for a Baptist, Methodist, um, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, and Mormon to work together. All right? What would you say is the problem with that? Definitions, different purposes. What else? 
there's differing beliefs about Jesus, especially when you start bringing in other groups that call themselves Christians, such as uh, Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. There are completely different teachings about Jesus. I heard somebody say there's a difference in purpose. What would be our purpose? I mean, so let, let's say that we want, to, we want to be involved in the community, and somebody comes up and they say, why are you doing this? The answer in all of these different denominations and belief systems is going to vary based on what you believe God has called you to do. We would say we are doing this because we want to introduce people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't want people to die and go to hell, right? There may be differing beliefs. And somebody then says, if you say that, if you're, if you're the spokesman for this ecumenical group and you say, we want people to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the next question out of their mouth is, how do I have that? Now, every person in this group is going to answer that question differently. All right? So we would say that it is through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. It is salvation is by grace through faith. The Catholic is going to say, it's grace through faith, and we got to believe this. we got to add sacraments. we got to add these other things in. The Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, are going to add other things in. So we have to be very careful about this ecumenical mindset because what it does is it blurs doctrine. It minimizes doctrine. It minimizes beliefs. Now, the next question that I've been asked, and I've been asked this before, is who should we work with and who should we not work with? Who should we cooperate with? Does that mean that we only are going to be willing to cooperate with other Baptists? Sure. So how do we determine who we cooperate with? I want you to picture a dartboard. You're tired of hearing about the dartboard. I want you to picture a dartboard. The closer in to the middle you get, the more important agreement is. If there is a group here in the middle, the, the, this middle is these core doctrines of salvation by, in Christ, by grace through faith, the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, these core doctrines, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. If someone does not agree with you on these core things, then we do not cooperate with them in ministry. It's completely different beliefs. If they do not agree with these things, then they do not fall under the true umbrella of biblical Christianity. You, you, you can't reject the deity of Christ and claim to be a Christian. I mean, you can, but you're not. Is that too blunt? Um, these core beliefs are what make Christianity Christian. It's what makes Christianity biblical. So if, if you differ on these, then, then you're not even in the same, we're not even in the same place. So no, we can't, we, we can't cooperate for ministry. It doesn't mean you ignore your neighbors who fall into those categories. You minister and you serve and you build relationships. But when it comes to ministering together, there's differences. You move out a little bit and there's going to be some differences. But these core doctrinal differences, I'm, I'm going to use the Lutherans, for example, um, with Lutherans, we believe, that we, we believe in the priesthood of the believer. We believe in Scripture alone. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith. Now, our worship services are going to look different, and there are some things that they would do that I would say probably that we, we, we differ with. But when it comes down to it, the way that they tell somebody to, to get to heaven by grace through faith in Christ, Scripture alone is the authority, we would agree with. That core doctrinal belief is the same. The same thing with some of these other denominations. Same thing with Presbyterian. A Presbyterian church believes, that believes, that the, and I would say the conservative arm of the Presbyterian, that believes in the inerrancy of Scripture and the virgin birth of Christ and the deity of Christ, we can cooperate with them. All right? Um, and then there's this outer layer where there's going to be even, we can disagree in here. There's things Jason and I disagree on. He's wrong, but there's things we disagree on. I'm just kidding, sort of. There's di the, yeah, there's going to be, no matter where you go, within a church, there's going to be some disagreements on some things, right? But we can still worship together. We can still meet together. We can still sing together. We can still gather together. So there, there's kind of these three rings. The most important is that core. If you're off on that core, then you're not even under the umbrella of biblical Christianity. 
we don't cooperate at all with that. We minister, we serve, we attempt to reach, but when it comes to ministry, we, there's no cooperation. You move out a little bit, there's going to be different denominations, and you have to look at each one of them carefully. And yeah, there's going to be some differences, but those core doctrines are the same. And so when it comes down to it, if I'm asked and a, and a conservative Presbyterian is asked, how do you get to heaven? They're going to be told it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. That's, going, that, that's crucial. We, we can cooperate in some things. I may not want to go to his church. He may not want to go to my church, but there's some areas where we can cooperate. And then there's the outer layer where we can come here and there's going to be little things that we disagree on, specifics that we disagree on. But listen, there's no reason for division. We can worship together. We can sing together. We can pray together. It doesn't cause any issues. Does that make sense? All right. I probably shouldn't do this. Any questions? Yes, Sandy. Okay. Well, and, and there are one of the values of, again, I don't agree with, with, with all of, of, of the Lutheran belief on the Lord's Supper and baptism, um, but they, it is very, it is held in high regard. It is not something that is done lightly. It is not something that is done haphazardly. It is very meaningful. It is very significant. Um, and so, I don't, want to minimize, I don't want to minimize what they do. They view it and they hold it in high regard. In some ways, they hold the Lord's Supper and baptism in a higher regard. Than, I mean, there's a lot we can learn from how they value um, what we would call the ordinances. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, is, it is very highly esteemed. I meant to mention this. All right, so there's key things. What is the key thing that helps you identify um, the Pentecostal denominations? The, the speaking in tongues, the sign gifts speaking in tongues. What's the main thing that allows you to identify Presbyterians, usually? The, the sovereignty of God in relation to salvation, sometimes called Calvinism. When you come to Methodists, um, they are the exact opposite of the Presbyterian, and they are what would be called Arminian. You have Calvinism and you have Arminianism. Most Methodists fall into this Arminianist, Arminianist mindset that says, yes, you can lose your salvation. You can give it back. You can lose it, which I would say is a pretty significant thing. Um, so, yes, you're exactly right. But that's one thing that helps you identify or that distinguishes Methodists from a lot of the other denominations is their belief in Arminianism that you can lose your salvation. Thank you. Some. Some Pentecostals do, but not all. It's a little more evenly split. All right, anything else? Going once? Well, and that's some of the, been the liberal, what I would view as the liberal shift in the Methodist church. They are, they are very, uh, I want to be careful. They are very good about ministering to the poor, ministering to those who are suffering. That is, a, that is something that it, they, we need to commend them on and we need to learn from. But in doing so, a lot of them have minimized the actual gospel in an attempt to minister to social needs. And that's part of that shift that is taking place. But they have always, the Methodist denomination has always been very big on ministering to those who are in need, ministering to those who are suffering. Um, that's very, very correct. Yes, up here. Um, that's a loaded question. Um, um, in the Presbyterian group, they, there are Presbyterians who practice infant baptism, but not for the purpose of salvation. Um, again, this is a whole other topic. So they do practice infant baptism, but they do not believe that the baptism saves or provides justification for the child. But if you look in many Presbyterian churches, you will see infant baptism. Um, I do believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that 
the Lutherans also baptize infants as well. I'm not, I'm not confident in saying all the beliefs that go into that or why they do that, and so, but they do. If you go into a Lutheran church, you will see that. Methodists also baptize infants, but it's done by sprinkling. Um, and so that's one of the things that differentiates the Methodist baptisms is the sprinkling. And so one of the things that you're going to see is in the Presbyterian, in the Methodist, and in the Lutheran, there are this element of baptizing infants. And even though the purpose behind each of them may differ, that is a, something similar that they all have. And that's one of the distinguishing marks of Baptist is the belief in the, the believer's baptism. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Baptist uh, denomination next week. Good question. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Okay. Okay, so they are, Lutherans are baptized as infants, um, but then about the age of 11 or 12, they go through a two-year training, catechism, I'm assuming, a lot of learning, um, Martin Luther's small catechism, and then they are re, is it re-baptized? Is that the way you would phrase it? A rebaptism or a confirmation. So, um, very good, very good question. Methodists do some of that as well. One of the things that we have done poorly in Baptist circles is we have not, a lot of these other denominations have what they call catechisms. A catechism means doctrine, it means teaching. <coughs> Excuse me. Goodness, it just kind of snuck up on me there. Um, and because, because of that, the kids growing up in a lot of these churches know very well what they believe, and they can defend what they believe. Baptists, in a way, because of, mainly the, because of the Catholic Church, I think got scared off by the term catechism because it was, it was perceived to be a Catholic term, and we didn't want anything. And, and, and in a way, a lot of Baptists have said, we don't need a catechism. The Bible is our sole authority. But in reality, a catechism can be a way of effectively communicating the truth that is in Scripture. Um, that's one of the things Baptists have done poorly with their children is teaching the truth of what we believe. And so don't be scared off by the term catechism. Pay more attention to the content um, of the catechism. Jason, you have your hand up? Oh, Mark. Say what? Which circle of the dartboard do some of these beliefs fall in? Goodness, um, I, sh- I knew I shouldn't ask questions. I should have just prayed and said, "Go home." Um, it depends. It depends. Practices again are connected to a belief, so it's hard to look solely at a practice and make a judgment call that you're asking to make without understanding the belief. So, just saying, okay, infant baptism. What do they believe that that infant baptism does? Presbyterians believe something completely different than Catholics. The Catholics believe it provides initial justification. To me, that puts it in that center area. And to me, that would be, I'm not going to cooperate with a Catholic who believes that because we believe different things about how you come to faith and how you are justified in Christ. Presbyterians with baptism, they do not believe the baptism of the infant provides justification. They do not believe it provides salvation. They have a completely different belief about that, and that's a whole other topic. I don't agree with it, but I would put that in that second realm. So not all practices are based on the same belief. Does that make sense? Um, So let me ask you, I'm going to ask you all a question. All right. So what about a denomination... So let's say Presbyterian. Majority of their doctrine we agree with, but now you have an arm of the Presbyterian church that, be- that rejects the inerrancy of the Bible. Some of them reject the inspiration of the Bible. They are for ordaining homosexuals for ministry. They are for gay marriage. Their doctrine, their stated doctrinal belief, that core would be a lot of ways pretty close with the exception of the inspiration of Scripture. What do we do? Pray for them. Do we cooperate? No. No is the correct answer. Why? I didn't understand any of that. 
okay? It's against our beliefs, and not only do we have to look at the doctrine of a group, we also have to look at the morality, the moral beliefs of a group, because everything affects our testimony. Everything affects our witness. And so not only do we pay attention to the doctrinal beliefs, which is crucial, but we also have to be very careful about the, the practical outworkings of those beliefs in a life and in a lifestyle. And so if cooperating with someone would harm the testimony or group us in with a, with a group or a belief system or a denomination or a, even a segment within a denomination that would harm our Christian witness and harm our testimony and harm our ability to communicate the truth, then we have to be very careful about that. Um, anything else? So, the loss of salvation. Let me ask you, where would you put that, the loss of salvation? A, a, a group believes you can lose your salvation. I would say that's in the core. I said I was going to ask you, then I just told you the answer. I'm sorry. I believe that's in the core. Why? It, it deals with that core of the faith, but let's, let's break it down a little bit. Let's think through this. If you can lose your salvation, who are you trusting in for your salvation? It ends up coming back to this, I would say, this, this works mentality of I have to be good enough to keep my salvation. And so that, in my mind, affects that core doctrine of, how, of our relationship with God. Not only how our relationship with God is established, but how our relationship with God is maintained. Um, I happen to believe, and I think the majority of you believe, that we are saved by grace through faith and is nothing that we have earned. It is not based on our works, and I don't have to work to be sure that I keep up my salvation. I work as a result of my salvation. There's a big difference. And so I would say that that group, that loss of salvation is in that core bullseye section. That's my opinion, since you asked. All right, I'm going to pray. All right. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for our time together this evening, the opportunity to study and learn. And um, these kind of conversations, while they're difficult and these questions can be challenging, they're healthy. It's good. Um, in us becoming more grounded and us thinking through these issues that we're going to be presented with. And I pray this has been beneficial. And I pray even as next week as we go through four other uh, denominations that uh, we, we would understand um, the importance of knowing why we believe what we believe. We love you this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.